Uh, we're in the uh, third chapter of Philippians, as you know, and so we'll kind of pick up. Um, we, I want to pick up with verse 12 of, of chapter 3, but we kind of need to just get the context again real, real, real quickly. Uh, here in chapter 3, Paul is transitioning now to a little bit of a different topic in the sense that he's addressing, we'll give them the label false teachers, um, uh, the name that's usually given to them are Judaizers, but uh, the point is they're adding something to the gospel. They're saying it's faith in Jesus Christ plus, and for them the plus was circumcision and a variety of other things. Paul just comes unglued with that, and it, it, is, it, is a, a, it is an affront to everything he stands for, and as he says, it's an affront to the cross. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. And I somewhat humorously, but uh, we had a good discussion. Uh, these folks are grace killers. They add to the grace of God. You cannot add to the grace of God when it comes to the salvation issue. Then he does some very personal things. Uh, he talks about his achievements, all that he's accomplished, and he says, these things I've counted as loss. They mean nothing when it comes to Christ. And then he talks about his, verse 10, and now finally to where uh, we're studying now. He focuses on now that he's made that decision of faith, and he is, let's use a theological term, justified. He's righteous in God's eyes, verse 9. What's his passion now? His life goal can be defined in three parts, that I may know him, verse 10, know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Those um, two phrases, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, he is identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is his passion. That is his goal. He wants to know Christ. I told you last week that know is, is the personal, intimate knowledge. It's just not no facts about Second is the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Christ from the dead. He wants to know that. He, he wants to know how to use that in his life. And finally, that koinonia of, of uh, suffering that is being conformed to the death and the resurrection, verse 11. Now verse 12. That's basically where we left off last week. This verse, verse 12, and actually into verse 13 and 14, is one of the nicest summaries of sanctification in, in the scriptures. And what I mean by that, sanctification from, from our perspective. Sanctification, as you know, uh, these are terms that you should know about. And if you're not familiar with these terms, these are terms you should just become real familiar with. But sanctification is that process of God making us holy. We are positionally holy in Christ. That's part of being in Christ. Now God's in the process of conforming us to what we already are. We are becoming what we are. Now that, that I've talked about that before. Does that make sense? It's kind of a review. So what's, what's Paul's focus on this? Not that I have already obtained it. What? What he's talked about in verse 10 and 11. I'm not there yet. Not that I have obtained it or have already become perfect. And, you know, we have talked about that term before. When we bring that into English, you think it means sinless. 
That's not what that Greek ter- term means. Telos. What it means is complete, mature. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, it's per- don't think of perfect the way you think of it as an English term, sinless. Now, in a sense, you can make it say that, but that's really not the thrust of the word. I'm not there yet. I'm not mature and complete yet. And being sinless is only a small part of that. It's the larger aspect, knowing Christ, the power, the fellowship, what he's talking about. So what do I do? Wow, it's, it's an insurmountable goal. I'll never get there, so I'm going to give up. Amen? It's not worth it. Amen? That's not what he says. I press on. That's an athletic term, and obviously you probably figured that out. But I press on with this purpose, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's a tongue twister. But you see what he's saying? I press on. I'm never going to give up in my pursuit of Jesus Christ. Not, not in salvation, but in terms of the becoming like Christ. We, we, we know this, Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The, the Father is conforming us into the image of his Son. And Paul says, I'm pressing on. I'm laying hold of that. And this is a, this is a way to paraphrase that. To lay hold of what Jesus has already laid hold of in me. He, what do you think he has in mind there, the Damascus Road? When Jesus Christ reached down and grabbed Paul and said, you're going in the wrong direction. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And then that changed Paul's life. Jesus laid hold of him. So he is pressing on to lay hold of... It, only, it almost sounds like it's uh, an oxymoron to lay hold of what Christ has already laid hold of. Him. He wants to become like Jesus because Jesus has already laid hold of him. That's the thrust of what he's saying. You make sense? He said that's his goal. In, another way, and this is just consistent with so many other parts of, of the New Testament. He wants to become like Jesus because that's the Father's goal for him. The Father's goal is that we become like his son. Paul understood that, so he says, that's, that's my goal too. I want to be like Jesus. And I want to know him. I want to know the power that's available through him. I want to fellowship and koinonia with him, identifying with his death, but even if it means suffering for his sake. There's nothing more important to Paul than Jesus. And not to make this sound trite, and it's almost, you know, it sounds like just a nice spiritual saying, but that really should be our goal. That Jesus is the most important thing in the world to us. And because of all that he's done for us, because of all that he has accomplished for us, and what he continues to accomplish. Uh, uh, Matt's in my early morning class, and we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're just at that section where the, the, the author is developing the, the idea of Jesus as our high priest. It's just an absolutely phenomenal idea. But in that section we were in this morning, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. 
think about that for a minute. And you know, that's personal. He makes that very, very personal. This isn't just a glib, you know, just a whole bunch of nameless people, fathers, see them all. No, no, no. It's personal. John 10 says he knows our name. So I was telling the guys this morning, in a very real sense, that Jesus is sitting up in heaven as the Son talking to the Father about you, about me. That isn't that sort of an awesome yes. thought? It's 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 almost an unimaginable thought. How can he do that for billions and billions of people? Because he's God. There's no, there's no, there's no limitations when it comes to God. I mean, it's just. You know, we're at Christmas time next Thursday, which you know is the Incarnation. And what the Incarnation shows us is that God cares. Isn't that true? I mean, if there's one very, very simple message you take away from Christmas is that God really cares. Because the Creator stooped to come to earth and become one of us. And forever, for the rest of eternity, the creature and the Creator are linked together in the salvation dynamic. And God is relentlessly pursuing it. But as we talk, well, I don't have the marker, so I have a clip. we got to pick up the clip. If we don't pick it up, it doesn't apply to us. So Paul, now this is this element of sanctification. This is his passion. I just love these verses that he's just describing the passion of his life. Look at verse 13, because he, he takes this now to a little bit of a different level. Practically speaking, but I do not regard myself as having laid of it yet. What he's just been talking about, ten, eleven. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies be lies ahead. You know, so many ways you can practically apply that. Certainly in Paul's life, it's the things that he talks about in verses four, five, and six. Some of those things, I'm sure he carried a terrible burden. I killed a lot of Christians. I persecuted the church. Now I love the founder of the church, and I'm doing everything I can to grow the church. But one time I persecuted, I killed Christians. That's something. He had to lay that behind. He had to forget about that. Can I put it? It's almost a euphemism, but I think it's a very accurate. Let God take care of the past. You walk into the future with him, tightly holding to his hand. Because the cross means God takes care of the past. Past, present, and future sin. Now, again, you know, I'm making that, there. obviously, as we, as we continue to sin, we confess, we deal with that. But God takes care of that. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing. It's a continuous present there. So Paul is saying, that's, my focus is on the future now, not the past. Is there a Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following. Is there a verse that can help us whenever we let our pride kind of get interfere with with our love for Christ? Philippians chapter (laughs) 2. And it it really is the whole theme of chapter 2, Matt. It's the humility. It's the other-centeredness. It's the selflessness that Jesus exemplified. And uh, with that approach, there is no room for pride and arrogance. 
And let me let me make another pr- very practical. Um, um, what's the word? Application of, of that kind of issue in our lives. If we have a, if we learn um, to practice that thankful spirit in our lives, and we're learning, and this is as we learn this, this isn't something instantaneously happens, but we learn the privilege and wonder of just continuous prayer, where we're talking to the Lord about. We talked about that before in the class, but we're just this ongoing talking to the Lord, conversation with the Lord, bringing him into everything. I think those two things, the the prayer and the thankful spirit, really help us practically stay away from the danger of pride. Uh, My wife has really taught me a great deal of that thankful spirit idea where, um, I mean, those of you who've been around me, you know that she's sick, she has a heart condition and autoimmune stuff and all that, but anyway... Every day, this is how she puts it, every day I wake up and I feel good. I am really thankful. Because there are many days she wakes up and she doesn't feel good. She still has to go on with her day. But you, you understand, that's a thankful spirit. Thank you, Lord, that I really feel good today. Amen. That's, a, that's, a, that's a spirit of thankfulness. Because when you wake up the morning and you don't feel good, you have a choice. I'm either going to be grumpy and bitter, and everybody that I touch is going to know it, or I'm going to be thankful to the Lord. And the days that I really feel good, I'm going to try to be as thankful as when I'm not feeling good. And when I don't feel good, I'm going to try to be as thankful to the Lord as when I... Then I'm getting confused there. But either one, I'm going to be thankful to the Lord. And I think that really helps us. And I'm learning that. I'm, boy, I'll tell you, I'm not there yet. But I'm learning that thankful spirit. That everything that happens to me, I should be able to thank the Lord for that. But that means my wife. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. She next to the Lord Jesus. Yes. She's yes. the most important person in my life. Oh. Right there. Yeah. Oh. David Barton in his speaking talks about I don't know if the particular what preachers in the time of the revolution mm. preceding it that would thank God that they didn't fall down the stairs that day. <laughs> That's good. Yes. <laughs> Oh, my. I mean, it's just that thankful for just everything, but that thankful spirit, I really do think, helped keep us from the the temptation of arrogance and pride, which is real. And it's especially for us as men. We're goal-oriented, performance-based guys. And when you get to your, boy, look, I'm really good. You see what I did? Do you know what I got? That's really good. Lord, just tap us on the shoulder. Yeah, you know, I was involved in that. You know, <clears throat> I gifted you. I made you the way you, you know. I gave you these, and it's just that thankful spirit. Who invented that saying, "More money than God"? Because I've had a few people come up to me, and well, that guy's got more money than God. He can't buy that. Or, you know, I don't like, know, but <laughs> that certainly isn't a biblical idea. Because <laughs> the Bible says he owns. You know. Then finally, verse 14, he's kind of saying the same thing three different ways. I press on, the same word that we saw in verse 12. I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, This call heavenward, if you will. And there, notice again that phrase. We talked about that last week. In Christ Jesus, 216 times in Paul's writings, 26 times in John's writings. 
That is the sphere of blessing. That's who we are. That's our identity. Our identity is, who are you? I'm in Christ Jesus. That's who I am. And that upward call for the prize of the upward call. There's a lot, there's a lot we can do with that term prize. It, it's obviously, it's an athletic kind of award in the Greco-Roman world. That's, that's what, it, um, what it's focusing on. But I think it's, for, for the believer, for the Christian, for Paul, it's the prize that is eternal life, the rewards, hearing the Lord Jesus say to us, well done. It's all of that set of dynamics that's wrapped around Christ coming back for us. I really believe, uh, I really believe this very strongly because Paul talks about this, I think, at least four times as I, as I recall. Reward, prize, hearing from Jesus well done was one of the greatest motivators in his life. Isn't that pride? It's an acknowledgement. What do you mean? It, it, it means that he is the reason for all of it. His redemptive work, mm -hmm. his grace, his mercy, his tenderness, his encouragement, all of it comes from him. Exactly. But I want to win the prize. I want to hear him say, well done. I want to get the crown. Isn't that selfish ambition? Isn't that self-elevation? Isn't that arrogance? Isn't that pride? I think it's the, it's the motive itself where it's going to make the difference because it's, if, if I'm focused on Jesus and because of my endless love to him, I want to please him, mm -hmm. not to be happy and arrogant about that I did it, but actually to just to please him because I love him so much. Okay. This is the kind of difference. Is that right? Or? That's good, Mark. That's a good way to put it. That really is. Is it like Job? Well, in a way, I mean, because regardless of what... He would... Yeah, see, he didn't, he didn't renounce his faith or renounce his commitment to God. But I think, I think you're right, Mark. It is... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a focus on the future. I want to hear Christ say, well done, because we love him. I am, I am so, this is Paul speaking, I'm so deeply committed to Jesus, so deeply in love with Jesus, my singular focus is Jesus, that I want to please him so much that I want to hear him say, well done. I don't want to disappoint him. That's not arrogance. I, I, I understand everything he's done for me and that all I had to do was pick up the gift. I did, that's all I had to do. I didn't have to do anything else. He did it all, and he paid every price. He suffered every wrong for me. He went to the cross. He did all those things. That is what's caused me to love him so much. I just want to please him. And there's nothing. It's like, well, analogies break down, but in a way it's like a child wanting to hear praise from his father. That's not arrogance. That's, I really want to please Dad. Well, we want to really please our Lord. And it's that, it's the difference, uh, and I think that's the word Mark used, but it's the difference of that motivation. Why do I do what I do? Another way of thinking of it is 1 Corinthians 10 31. Whatever I do, Paul says, I do all to the glory of God. That's not arrogance, 
It's not self-elevation. That's dependency, and it's got the right focus to it. Daryl. If there was only one prize, you could say it might be selfishness, mm. but it's something that we all can hear. Mm. Exactly. And there's another place, and I don't know where it's at, <coughs> he says that if, if his um, being a nothing so that others Christ, mm. do it. It's in First uh, Corinthians nine. I become all things to all men, and I might win some. What, whatever I have to do, if it's becoming a weak, I'll do it. Be, I mean, whatever it is, so that others can find Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Is that similar to? So I'm thinking when he calls me friend. Yes. Is that related to that? Right. Well, sure. I mean, John thirteen, where he says. You know, he's talking to disciples, but he's talking to all of us who put our faith in him. I now call you friend. Yes. Which is another one of those, it's just an unimaginable thought that this creator would stoop to call crusty, dirty, little human sinners friends when they put their faith in him. It's just incredible. God cares. Andrew. Um, you made me think of a, a, an illustration that I really enjoy. Is um, and kind of a kind of puts a face on the idea of, of going after that prize. Is uh, Chariots of Fire, uh, mm-hmm. Eric Liddell, um, mm-hmm. and and then the other runner who's depicted in there. The, the other runner is you know an Oxford educated yeah, Olympic runner, a Jewish runner, and he's he's just striving, striving to win, striving mm-hmm. to win, and that's what he wants. And he says, "I have ten seconds to justify my existence in this race." Whereas uh, Liddell was going to China as a missionary, mm-hmm. um, but he wanted to run in the Olympics not for the glory of the Olympics, but he said uh, that when I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah. I feel God's pleasure. God, God he, made me fast. God made me fast, and mm-hmm. when I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah, and so it just made me think of that's that. Exa- that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a great movie in that, uh, in, that, uh, in that sense. And it does, the contrast in the movie between those two men is very, very clear. It's very intentional. What's going on there? Yeah, that is really that's a good example. Uh, the, the importance as well is when we please Him, we are not going. This is not our way to heaven because you guarantee our way to heaven already. And, and this is very significant to talk about. If we are pleasing Him. He's not going to say, "Okay, I'm pleased. I'm going to send you to heaven." It just this yeah. is the end. Yeah, the, yeah. Because the the heaven is already guaranteed by Him. Yeah, that's right. Because it's kind of that's already settled. Okay, then I'm going to work hard so I can get to heaven. Yeah. He's going to give me the keys. Yeah. No, he's not going to give you the keys. He's going to give the keys on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. We already have it. And that, it, it, when you really understand that, which is what grace is all about, when you really understand God's grace, then the motivation in our lives becomes just a thoroughgoing love for him. Because you, you, you understand very clearly, there, I am not living the way I'm living to earn brownie points with God because that's impossible and Jesus paid everything for me anyway and it is it's the difference between uh, well in that movie that it's a difference between those two runners the one is doing it to the glory of God because he recognized how God created him and, and the speed and ability to run that God gives so I'm running to his glory so when he says I can feel his pleasure that certainly is a blessing absolutely it's a blessing Absolutely. Able to feel his pleasure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's right. It just seems, boy, when, 
when you really come to understand this, what Paul is saying here, it gives an eternal dimension to everything you do. Doesn't it? It gives an eternal dimension to everything I do. Colossians 3.22 through the beginning of chapter 4, which is one of the most important passages in the Bible on work. Why do we work hard? Because, Paul says, you're working to the glory of God. You're, you're, the Lord Christ is your boss. I serve him, and I work to bring glory to him. And I mean, it's just, it's, and it's the same way with, I don't know, we've talked about this a little bit before. Same way you're out cutting your grass on a Sunday after, uh, not a Sunday, on a summer afternoon, but you're cutting your grass. And I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're in, in, uh, in stewardship responsibility of something God's given you. You're taking care of it. Is it legitimate to feel a sense of accomplishment and thanking the Lord? For, absolutely. The joy of sitting in your yard and looking at the beautiful yard that God's given you and rejoicing in that with him. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this. Thank you for giving me this. I mean, that's, that brings joy and purpose to life. Otherwise, why am I cutting my grass? Well, I want to have a better grass than my neighbor. <laughs> you know, oh, man. Then you're, you know, you're, you're, that, you're never going to be satisfied with that because somebody's always going to come up I think probably it's right to say, with a better yard or a better looking yard. No. It, thank you, Lord, for what you've given me. I want to take care of it because you gave it to me. And it, I bring glory to you. And, you know, it's just every dimension of life takes on such a different meaning and perspective to it. That's what Paul's saying here. If squirrels are wrecking it, can we chase them away? <laughs> they should be, too. You want to? They just the greatest evidence of the fall in nature is a squirrel. <laughs> Matt, why did you hit my hot button? <laughs> well, I got some gophers, and they're ruining my heat field, and I just, I, I bought a whole bunch of books, and I really don't want to do it, but I've been using them for days, and they are repeating. Well, re remember, remember Genesis chapter 1, 26 and following, and chapter 2 as well. You have dominion authority over God's world. You can rule over the fish of the sea, et cetera, et cetera, which means you and I have a right to take care of these varmints. <laughs> and do so to the glory of God. I think Clarence said that too. This is the amplified version. Yeah. There you go. All right, verse 15 and, and following. How are we doing here? In good shape. Now, um, he begins to apply what he has been teaching in the first half of this chapter, the first two-thirds of this chapter, to the Philippians and to some specific things that were going on there, which we'll, we'll get to in, in verse 19 and following. You'll see in verse 15, let us therefore, okay, that means he's now applying this. Therefore, let us, as many as are perfect. Now there again, you must remember that's telos, it's not sinless. It's mature. It, it, all it means is, is mature in the faith. You're growing in the faith. That's all that means. It's, it's really thoroughly incorrect to see that as, therefore, as many of you, as many of you that are sinless. That's, that's not what it means. As mature, have this attitude. What attitude? The attitude that I've just expressed of having a future Christ-focused perspective on life. And if anything you have, if any, 
And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. If you don't quite see it that way, God's going to take care of that. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. The the standard, again, that he's talking about in verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Brethren, join in following my example. You know, literally, join in mimicking me. Would you ever say that to somebody? Let your eye go over to verse 9 of chapter 4. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Would you ever say that to somebody? In effect, he's saying, you want to know how to pull off this life? Follow me around. I did that to my son. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but, but they're going to follow you. Yeah. They're going to do now, what you do. And, and then, now let your eye go back to verse 17. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Pattern, paradigm, model. Let's take from verse 17 and verse 9 of chapter 4 a principle. That principle is choose good spiritual models. That's what Paul is saying to us. Again, this isn't a self-elevating, arrogant statement. It's a truth statement about life. The Bible has so much to say about the older showing the younger how to live. About the older who are wise helping the younger how to live their lives. I raised two children. And whether I intentionally was thinking this way or not, they watched everything I did. Every time I was driving, there were four eyes in the back seat. Two of them belonged to Jonathan, two of them belonged, and they're watching everything you do. They hear you speak. They watch how you respond. They watch how you react. You are modeling something before them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible on what teaching is really about. You formally teach, and then you model what you teach. Because you know as well as I do, now I'm thinking here especially of children. Children pick out hypocrisy instantly. They pick out inconsistently, inst- inconsistency instantly. So Paul is just laying down a governing principle of life. Choose good spiritual models. I encourage men in these mentoring groups, I have encouraged men, Read good biographies of spiritual leaders. I, I always, I all, and many of the guys do this, I always recommend Augustine's Confessions, which is one of the most important spiritual autobiographies ever written. Augustine, he lives in the five, fifth century, the 400s was when he was an adult. He was born in the 300s. But he was one of the most precocious, brilliant 
young guys. He did, he did everything. He was successful. He was one of the most immoral guys. He sired an uh, illegitimate child. He was just a horror. And then, then he met Jesus. All right, he said he got born again. Yeah, then he met Jesus. And his life is transformed. And he talks about this spiritual pilgrimage he was on. You read that. It was written in 400. You read it like it was written yesterday. Because what, I mean, you know, the, Rome, Rome's like, you know, New York's Rome. <laughs> I mean, it's like the same things that he struggled with, the same things that guy struggles with today. The appeal of, you know, the, the appeals of success and in everything you try, everything he did, he did successfully. But he was in thoroughly immoral. He talks to me as a young boy. Uh, he, he, he lived, his father was a very successful Roman official. His mother was a believer, Monica, she prayed for him. And he tells the story. He was a young little boy, I think he was like six. He and a group of guys went to the next door neighbor and stole a whole bunch of prayer, prayers. Why did they steal the prayers? Were they hungry? No. They didn't have any food at home? Yeah, they had plenty of food at home. So why did they steal the prayers? Because it was a great thing to do. Stealing prayers and stealing from our neighbors. Yeah, and, and he says it just showed this is how evil I really was, even as a little child. And the, the point the point I'm making is the spiritual pilgrimage of autobiography. That's a great autobiography to read. Because what you see is the absolute transformation Jesus Christ brought to this man's life. And for the rest of his life, he's, one of the, he's probably the greatest theologian of the first thousand years of the church. I, the, but it, I say to the guys... Choose good biology. Choose good spiritual models. Because what you see, and Paul's told us about some of this, you don't see a sinless person. You see how a person wrestles with the things of this world and always comes down on Christ's side. How you struggle through temptation. How you wrestle through not arrogant motivation, but things that are honoring to the Lord. How do I do that? That's the kind of that's what he's saying, and I think he has in mind, in again verse uh, seventeen, those who walk according to pattern, the Timothy and Epaphroditus. In the previous chapter, he said, "I'm going to send these guys to you. I want you to get to know these guys." And it's the same thing. You and I, I, I in my life, I've had mentors and models that have tremendously influenced me, and almost always they influence me because of the godly, God honoring approach to life that they had. They were not sinless. But I learned even as I watched him deal with mistakes and errors. And that's, that's what he's saying, because we need that. And, a, and a, a, a wise, this is what Solomon says to his sons in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, choose good friends. Is that relevant in 2014? Yeah. <laughs> To our kids, choose good friends. Be very careful in who your close friends are because they're going to influence you. So he's saying, choose individuals that are walking according to the pattern we've been talking about. They're centered on Jesus. Their passion is Jesus. They want to please Jesus. They're good. I want to, I want to follow somebody like that. I want to learn from somebody like that. That's what he's saying. All right? Verse 18, for many walk. Now, before we get into this next section, I want you to notice in verse 17 he used the word walk. In verse 18 he uses the word walk. 
Why do you think he uses that figure of speech, that metaphor, walk? Say it again. It relates to most everybody. How so? Yes. <laughs> well, it can, it can mean, just that's how you get around, but it can also mean, I mean, walk. Life is a journey. Yeah. Is there anything abnormal about walking? That's the normal dimension of life. We sometimes talk about the Christian walk. And what we mean by that is the Christian life, because walking is the norm of life. So the Christian walk, or the... Um, the, the believer's walk is these, this is the norm. This isn't extraordinary. This isn't abnormal. The walk is the normal, ordinary way in which you should be living. When I was in seminary, uh, an upperclassman, the program I was in was a four-year uh, graduate program. Anyway, he was an upperclassman, and he was a really neat guy. I may have said this to you guys before, but it's just a good illustration here. He was, he was just really really focused and very very on fire for the Lord. But as, as an upperclassman, you know, seminary or graduate education can also be, often be lethal for your faith. It wasn't. It really enhanced it. He was a really neat guy. He'd walk up to you and say, Joe, how's the walk? What do you mean by that? How's my walking? You know, I, I, do you mean do I have a cane today? What do you mean? How's your walk with Christ? That's what he meant by that. How's your walk? And it was uh, for, for in seminary, in graduate school, you, you, you start to focus on the Bible as a textbook, not the living word of God. And it becomes so academic that you lose the vitality of it. And that's what Bob was doing with us. He was just kind of, how's your walk? You're in the word today studying 14 books and exegeting in Greek three passages. How's your walk? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. And so when Paul, and that's where he gets that, Paul constantly says that in Ephesians, he does that in Galatians, he describes the Christian life as a walk with God. That's why you've heard me say, when we, we walk with our hand tightly in the Lord's, because that's our walk. And we're not walking backwards, we're walking forwards, walking you know, toward the future. And so that walk, according to the pattern that we've laid out, why is it so important to have a clear focus in your walk, a, God, a Christ-centered focus in your walk? That's what verse 18 is all about. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, now to you weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. There are many people that you will rub shoulders with that are not walking with Christ. They're walking in the other direction. And he has, and I, I organized this way in your notes, he has a five-fold description of these folks. Let's read this. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. Fivefold characteristic. Perhaps these are the false teachers that he mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. The dogs. <laughs> Remember, that's how he described them. 
So he begins by describing them as the enemies of the cross of Christ. They're walking, but their walking is not the walk of Jesus. They're enemies of the cross. Now, in the context of what we discussed earlier, a couple of weeks ago, enemies of the cross of Christ, they're adding to Christ. They're adding things. It's Jesus plus whatever it is. It's like someone comes along in the 21st century and says, look, I, I like what you're teaching about Jesus, but I also want you to consider reading this and this and this and then doing this and this and this. Then you'll have a more complete salvation. The moment somebody says that, they're an enemy of the cross. Now, I'm not, I'm not picking on this. It's just a perfect illustration. In the 1840s, there was a man from Palmyra, New York, who said... I have discovered an additional gospel. There is the gospel of Jesus, plus there's another gospel. And so I'm going to want you to read the New Testament, but I'm also going to want you to read a new book. It's called the Book of Mormon. And I want you to read that too. So you read this book, and then you read this book. Because this is the other testament of Jesus. And it's a whole bunch of additional things you must do and you see, that's immediately, and I, again, I'm choosing that example because it's a modern-day example, and you're all somewhat familiar with it. That, that, that message makes that person now an enemy of the cross. Because what Joseph Smith was saying is, the cross of Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus, plus you need this and this and this and this, and then you have to do this and this and this, and then you get to this spiritual state, and then you do more, and then you get to this spirit. That's what he was teaching. So whenever anybody says it's Jesus, it's his cross, plus you have to do this. That's what Paul, he's, it's, a red flag goes up. Mm. That's, what, that's, that's the point. I'm not, I don't want to get into Mormons or anybody else. I'm just using it as an example. I'm glad you broke that down, though, because when you first read it, I was thinking, well, maybe some of the people I pray with, or, and I'm looking around, you know, but I'm glad, I'm glad you broke that down. Yeah. I, was, I was getting confused. Just a short little question here, and it's funny, it happened today and yesterday. I've been reading the Apocrypha just for a little bit. My the goodness. Congratulations. Nobody I know reads the Apocrypha. That's good. As an historical document. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you see. Anyway, verse 19, the second characteristic, whose end is destruction. What does he mean by that? If they're adding to the cross of Christ, enemies, their end is destruction from God's perspective. God's not going to bless that. Whose God is their appetite. Now that's, a, that's a, if I say euphemism, you know what I mean by that? It's, in other words, what he's saying is, whose God is their appetite. They are self-centered, self-indulgent, selfish people. They're in it for themselves. That's their, quote, God, close quote. So now, again, you're, you're, getting, that, you're getting the sense of probably the heart of a false teacher. They're really not in this for God. And then fourthly, whose glory is their shame? Okay, again, that's somewhat of figurative, but they receive a lot of glory. They receive a lot of praise. Wow, that's fantastic. Yes, we're with you. Paul says, in light 
of being an enemy of the cross, that should be a cause of shame for that, not glory. And then kind of a summary focus, they set their minds on earthly things, not eternal things. They set their mind on earthly things. I mean, they're, if they're, they're, they're God is their appetite, then that makes sense. They're just living through the moment, what they get out of this deal, not to please Christ. In so many ways, and again, I certainly we can maybe talk a little bit about this in terms of application, but that fivefold description can fit any false teacher in any century, including ours. When someone adds to the cross or diminishes the cross or does away with the cross, this fits them. I think I, uh, maybe I didn't. 